all know what that is, uh, to receive grace in a general way. And our desire is that each one of us would know in a saving way and a, a transforming way what it is to know God's grace. And uh, Kyle and Emily, we appreciate your transparency, your willingness to be known uh, here at this church and honesty and then just glorifying God through that, even in, in failure, even in those difficult times. I'm going to pray for you and I want to pray for us as we open up God's word uh, that he would continue to speak to us and show us his grace. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I lift up Kyle Yeager, and I pray, God, that you would make him an incredible leader in his home. I pray that you would give him a passion for your word. I pray, God, that you'd uh, make him someone that boldly and clearly proclaims your son, Jesus Christ, through his life, through his lips. And, Father, I pray for Emily. I pray, God, that you'd have your hand on her. Do you give a spirit anointing upon her to be a woman that impacts this church, impacts this world and our community, that you continue to develop her into the godly woman you want her to be. And I pray for Claire, too, that you'd be preparing for her a wonderful plan uh, that would be... Uh, impactful for this world. I pray you keep her pure. I pray that you would protect her. I pray that you would guide her days, that she'd trust you as her Savior at a young age. And Father, I pray for us as we open up your word, that you would please speak to us through your word, through your scriptures. And I pray you'd speak to us in our failure. And I pray you'd speak to us in the difficult times. I pray you'd speak to us at those mountaintop experiences. And Father, you know everyone who's here. You know everyone who will hear these words online uh, today and live. God, I know that you are in control of every story. And I pray you'd speak into every story today. I pray that supernaturally your word would come alive into our hearts, that you would speak through uh, to us through your spirit, and God, that we would be transformed as a result of having an encounter with you, the living God. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, let me start by asking you a, a pretty simple question, but not a fun one. Have you uh, ever failed before? Have you ever blown it? And maybe not your biggest failures ever, but just think about simple stuff. you ever said something stupid in the wrong moment? Welcome to my world. Have you ever uh, have you ever failed a test? You know, you fail a driver's test, you fail an eye test, or you fail something in college. My first test ever in college, I got a 49. <laughs> I thought that, you know, I did make it through eventually, but uh, I didn't think that uh, you had to study in college. I thought it was like high school part two. I failed that test. And you think of some failures in your life? Maybe you were an athlete, you have a game-winning shot that didn't go in, and you missed the shot, or maybe a business investment, or, or maybe there's these different failures in life. And don't you hate it when someone reminds you of when you've blown it? <laughs> Welcome today, and I've just done that for you. And this week, I had a friend do that for me. It was a buddy of mine that I went to college with, and we were emailing back and forth, and we were talking some junk about some sports situations and different things, and he reminded me of a time when I was so dumb, I actually got kicked out of jail. <laughs> Have you ever met any, like, you've heard of people getting released from jail on good behavior, right? Have you ever heard of someone getting kicked out of jail because of bad behavior? <laughs> Hello, my name is Scott. I would love to be your pastor. Uh, thank you for coming here today. And I actually got kicked out of jail one time. The way the story went was uh, I was a college student, and uh, prison was being opened uh, very near our college campus. And they had this situation where college students could go and stay the night in this jail before they officially opened it up, and you actually got college credit. And so I thought to myself, one night in jail, and I get a whole college credit? This has got to be the easiest credit in the world. And so myself, three of my buddies, we signed up for this. None of us were criminal justice majors, by the way. <laughs> it was just like a pretty nice credit here. And so we signed up to go do this thing. And what we ended up finding out, I thought I was going to go there and study for other classes, just sit in some cell somewhere. We found out was the reason why they did this is because they wanted a, a mass population in the prison so the guards could get used to going through the routines, like taking us to the cafeteria, going to the rec area, making sure we can be in the commons area together, getting us in and out of our cell, all that kind of stuff. I was kind of in a big cell, but anyway, they were doing this whole deal. And so it was really for the guards, the whole situation was. But we had the orange jumpsuits and the whole deal, and we weren't supposed to talk at certain times. They faked a fight one time, so that was kind of fun to watch. And the guys had big sumo wrestler suits on. But anyway, they did this whole deal, and they took us you know, through different areas. And I remember when they took us out to the rec area. 
which was a basketball court, and about six feet away from where I was standing was a fence with some, you know, some spiky stuff on top of it, and there's another fence after that, and you know how college guys are? They just gave us free time, so we start to talk, and our imaginations start to go, and we said, well, we're here for the guards. What if we tried to escape? You know, and then, you know, college guys, like, one thing leads to another thing. Next thing you know, we're developing a plan to escape from jail. So we're looking at this fence, thinking, we'd climb that fence. They're all the way over there. By the time we get to the top of the fence, they wouldn't be here. And then it was a new building, and so all the dirt hadn't been filled in. And the second fence you had to go through was, you know, four to six feet away from the first one. And th- there was enough space, and I said, you know what? I bet a human body could fit underneath that fence. And then we'd be out. And, and so what we decided was, as soon as they break rec time, we'll run to the fence. We'll count one, two, three, and run to the fence. So this horn sounds, rec time's supposed to be over with, everybody's supposed to go to different sides of the wall there, and, and the, the horn sounds, and we go, one, two, three. And the four of us, we run to the fence. Three of us stop. <laughs> one of us jumped up on the fence. I wasn't the guy who jumped up on the fence. Joke was on him. He climbs up the top of this thing, spiky stuff on top, tears his orange you know, souvenir jumpsuit apart, and gets a couple cuts. And the police, they didn't think this was real funny. They came running across, but we're fake prisoners, so it's not like they were shooting. And so they jump up on the fence, they try to climb it, they couldn't climb the fence. That was the funny part to us as we we're standing there. They're like hanging on the fence. Our buddy's over the top. He jumps the other side, looks around. Nobody's there. So he crawls underneath the next side. Now what do you do? Because he just escaped from prison. One night stay. He escapes from prison. And he's the one who drove us there. <laughs> and so he's not going anywhere. We're all standing on the inside. And his keys are in the front in the room where we had to you know, leave all of our stuff when we got there. So he walks around to the front door and knocks on the jail. Hey, can you guys let me back in? Who's ever done that, right? You know, can, can you guys let me back in? The boss was the guy that answered the front door. And while we were cracking up, he didn't think it was very funny. And so he brought us into this room, gave us this tongue lashing. He actually graduated from the school that we were at and yelling at us about that and all this type of deal. He kicked us out of jail. I couldn't even stay in jail. But God's grace, I got credit for the class still. <laughs> it was awesome. Uh, but have you ever blown it before? Have you ever failed? Maybe you've been kicked out of jail. But have you ever, you know, missed a shot or made one of those investments where, where you wish you had never done it or there was a, an opportunity where if you would have, then it would have been so much better or maybe a relationship or maybe it was something that could have been financial, could have been relational. You've got these failures. Maybe it was verbal, something you just said at the wrong moment, at the wrong time. And see, a lot of that stuff we can look back at and we can laugh at, but I want to ask you a very serious question today. What's your greatest failure? And some of you, your minds go right to it. You know exactly what it is. Some of you, it's a person. You go right to that. Some of you maybe remember a time in your life, like Emily mentioned in her story, where she didn't want to do what God wanted to do. She wanted to be like everybody else, and so you, you turned your back on God. You did your own thing for a period of time. Some of you, maybe it's a sexual situation. Some of you, maybe it had to do with the substance. Some of you had to do with things that you said or a deception, a lie. What's your greatest failure? I'll tell you, it's not a surface failure. It wasn't that you picked the wrong career. It wasn't that you missed a shot in a game. It's not any of that stuff. Your greatest failure in your life is a moral failure. Because what happened was God created you and you chose something other than the one who created you. He chose you and you chose something else. And whether that was because of deception or whether that was because you were turning your back on him, whether that was a sexual sin, whether that was an addiction, whether it was you just wanted to go your own way, whether it was you wanted to fake everybody else out, you had kind of double life going, whatever it was, your greatest failure in your life was a moral failure. Do you know your greatest failure? And while no one likes to think about that, I want you to hold that thought. As today we talk about God's grace and our failure. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 21. And we're going to look into the life of someone at the point in time where they're being redeemed from the greatest failure, and it's a moral failure, the greatest failure in their lives. 
It's the Gospel of John, John chapter 21. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, if you're not familiar with the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, we give them out. We'd love to give you one on your way out today. The Connections kiosk or over here by the offering box. There's a stack of Bibles. Just grab one. You don't even have to ask. Just take it with you. And we'll put verses up on the screen, but the benefit of that is you get to see the context. Everything that's going on around the verses. So you can make the Bible say anything you want to. If you just take a couple words and then start talking about those words, but when you see them in context... That drives the meaning of what's happening. The context of our passage here is one of failure. It's an incredible failure by a man who's been ashamed of Jesus Christ before men. And he was a guy who said that he would do whatever it takes to follow Jesus. And the point of the story that we're at is that Jesus has died for that sin already on the cross. He's risen from the dead. He's appeared to his disciples on multiple occasions. In fact, the first time he comes, he says, peace be with you. <laughs> You're here. Like, that's kind of scary. And then the next time he comes, he just says the same thing, but this time he, he does it by his grace so that a guy named Thomas can see him who is doubting. And then he says that he wants to meet his guys in Galilee, tell some women, and the women tell these men, and they go to Galilee. And while they're there, it's what they do. They decide to go fishing. Peter, who's the leader, and he's the main character in our story today, has the conversation with Jesus. And six other disciples, and Peter says, I'm going to go fishing, and the other guys come with him, and he goes out on this Sea of Galilee, and they fish all night, and he's not able to catch anything. And so there's a failure there, but that's just surface-level failure. That's like when you don't do well in your career. That's like when you say something at the wrong time. That's like just a mistake. Like it just went bad for some reason. You picked the wrong stock, whatever it is there. That's, that's not the great failure. But there's that surface level failure here where they're not able to catch anything. And then this voice comes from the shore. But it's morning time. It's probably still gray outside. There's a mist in the air, I'm sure, at this time of year for the Sea of Galilee. And, and the voice says, did you guys catch anything? Hey, friends, did you catch anything? A few of them yell out, no, I didn't catch anything. Voice says, Throw your nets on the other side of the boat. <laughs> like, really? They hadn't tried that? They've been out here all night? Professional fishermen? You think that all night they were just like left side of the boat, left side of the boat? Whoa, there's another side to the boat, you know? Do you think that's what happened here? And they throw their net on the other side of the boat, and there's so many fish they can't haul the net in. They can't get it into the boat. And this is eerily familiar to another situation that they had been in. This time the nets don't break, and one of them gets it. John, the guy who writes this gospel, he leans into Peter and he says, it's the Lord. And then Peter, he's impulsive. If you don't know Peter, he jumps out of the boat into the water, grabs his coat, jumps in the boat, swims to the shore. <laughs> and these six buddies are still back here trying to pull these fish in, right? <laughs> hey, we got it, Peter. You know, we're good. Peter swims up to the shore and he finds Jesus there. And Jesus is at a charcoal fire. Remember that, that's key. And he already has fish. And he invites them to breakfast. And the other six guys, they come up and they have this breakfast together. And what happens is the author of this gospel zooms in on a conversation with his best friend in Jesus, Peter. And look at it. In John chapter 21 and verse 15, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said to Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And then John tells us how his friend felt. Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? Do you know why I asked him three times? Because Peter denied Jesus three times. And what we see here is restoration taking place. We see here redemption. We see here he's reclaiming him. He's renewing him. He was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? 
He said, Lord, you know all things and you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. He then said to him, follow me. And so you think about what we have here. There's this breakfast is taking place on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and there's this charcoal fire, and, and Peter looks through the fire, and Jesus asks him this question three times, and three times because he's restoring him in this from the denial, from the greatest failure in his life. And I don't know what your greatest failure in your life is, but you need to hear these words. God's in the business of redeeming us in our failure. And that's what he was doing here with Peter. See, God is in the business of redeeming us in our failure. Not just redeeming our failure, he's redeeming us in the failure. And he's always been in this kind of business. Think about it. From the very beginning, remember he creates in Genesis chapter 1, in six days he creates, you know, the heavens, the earth, and fish, and birds, and bees, and all that kind of stuff are there. He created male and female in his image. He created them, and he puts them in a perfect environment, a perfect relationship with him. And they get to, can you even imagine how amazing Eden must have been? And while they're in this environment, he says, there's one thing I don't want you to do. I don't want you to eat of this one tree. But they believed a lie. And the lie was, God's holding out on you. The lie was, if you just had whatever God gives you plus this, then you'd really be happy. Or there's a better plan than what God has. And so like Emily said in her story, she, she wanted to be like everybody else. Just do your own thing and go, go do this. And they bought the lie. It was the first moral failure. And God's been redeeming ever since. And we all fail ever since. Every one of us. So I don't know how you answered the question, but if you said that you don't, that's not true. See, the scriptures even tell us in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, for all have sinned, that's failure, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And here's something interesting for us to note. Those of you who are believers in Jesus Christ, you've placed your faith in Jesus. The Romans, we oftentimes use this as evangelism verse. This is actually written to believers. And so for all of us, even believers, have sinned. We fail. And see, sometimes you hear testimonies, people tell their story, and the way that it goes is something like this. Uh, before I knew Jesus, failure, 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 did all this dumb stuff. Then I came to know Jesus, everything's great. I never mow it again. They're lying to you, just so you know. That's not how it really works. We all fail, even after we know Jesus Christ. And here's Peter, after he's been introduced to Jesus, has the greatest moral failure of his life. And then Jesus has this restoration conversation with him. Go back to verse 15 and look at what Jesus says to him. First of all, John makes it very clear how he addresses Peter. This is when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, but notice Jesus never calls him Peter. He says, Simon, son of John. It's a very formal address. Why would he say this to Peter? Why would he call him Simon, son of John? See, Jesus is the one who gave him the name Peter, and Peter means the rock. Why is it here he says, Simon, son of John, this formal address? You ever been addressed with a formal address? Your, your parents ever call you by your middle name? <laughs> Scott Michael Lear. See, when I heard that, my mom had my attention because I knew physically it wasn't going to be good in a couple moments. <laughs> See, Jesus, he says this, and he's not going to physically discipline Peter, but he has his attention here. And why does he do it? Is it because he's saying, I gave you the name Peter, but you've gone back to living your life the way you were before I met you? Or is he saying, you're not living up to the name that I've given you, Rock? You're wavering. We don't know why, but he has Peter's attention. He says, Simon, son of John. 
do you love me more than these? And commentators are divided about what Jesus means when he says more than these. What's he referring to when he says more than these? And some people, when they repicture the scene, imagine that Jesus is sitting there with these seven disciples, Peter and these six other guys. And remember, there's this big catch and there's this boat and maybe Jesus is sitting on the edge of the boat and he reaches around and he grabs the nets and he grabs some of the fish and he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Asking, do you love me more than your career? Do you love me more than stuff? Do you love me more than the things that you're striving to attain? That's a good question. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying because Simon's already answered that question. In Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, he left everything. He left the fishing business. And yeah, he goes back and he goes fishing here, but there's nothing that John says that makes it sound like that was wrong or that that was sinful. What I believe that Jesus is saying when he says, do you love me more than these? As he's sitting there, maybe on the edge of the boat, and he looks and he says, do you, Simon, do you love me more than these other men love me? Because you may remember another meal where Peter was with Jesus And there was 11 other disciples there. It was the last supper that they would share together. And think of how intimate that meal must have been. Jesus is having his last meal before he's crucified with these men. He redefines the elements. He talks about the promise of his blood. He says, whenever you have this meal again, do it in remembrance of me because he's telling them it's the last time I'm going to die. And these are guys that he's lived life with for the last couple of years. These are guys that left tax collectors' businesses, left fishing businesses, left wealth, left families, have left everything to follow Jesus. And they've laughed together. They've been through the storms together. They've had all these experiences together. And he's telling them, this is the last meal we're ever going to have with one another. You can imagine how intimate this was. And then he goes on a walk with them at the end of the meal. As they're walking through this olive grove, he says to them, a prophecy, the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter. And he tells them, you all are going to deny me. And then Matthew chapter 26 and verse 33, Peter says, paraphrase, even if all these men deny you, I won't. And no matter what everyone else does, I will follow you. And he goes on and he says, I'll follow you even to prison and to death. But you know what happens right after that? What happens right after that is Jesus gets arrested. Some people come to arrest Jesus, and you may remember Peter in the story. What ends up happening, he's pretty bold. He's pretty courageous, you know, impetuous. Peter, he's trying to just, just make decisions on the spot. He grabs a sword when they come, and I, the way I imagine the story is he runs over and he jumps off of Bartholomew's hip. You know, Bartholomew doesn't get any play in the scripture, so I just kind of put him in there. And so he jumps off his hip and does like a matrix move, you know, cuts the ear off this dude. Jesus is like, stop doing that, Peter. Go over here. He you know, fixes the guy's ear and moves on. Jesus gets arrested. That's kind of how I imagine the story taking place. And you can read it for yourself in the scripture. And uh, then Jesus goes off to the high priest's courtyard. And two disciples follow. So the other guys, they're scattered now. But Peter and another disciple, who doesn't name himself as he writes the gospel, follows Jesus to the high priest's courtyard. You can't just walk into the high priest's courtyard. You've got to know somebody. Well, the other disciple, he knows somebody. And so he starts talking to the gal that lets everybody in. He's the one who's kind of checking ID and all that kind of stuff at the high priest's courtyard. And, and, and Peter's coming through, and she's, he said to her, you know, let Peter in. As he's coming through, she says, hey, weren't you with him? And Jesus has told him, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. He said, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. It's interesting, too. Jesus actually tells him that he's prayed for Peter. Satan wants to sift him, but that, that he's prayed for Peter that when he turns back implied you will turn away, that he would strengthen the brothers. And here's Peter at this moment with this girl. She asked the question, just a young girl. He says, I'm not him. Not on, I haven't been with him. No, she, he denies Jesus. Then he goes over to a charcoal fire. 
there are only two times that the Greek word for charcoal fire appear in the entire New Testament. One is in the passage we're looking at where he's having this charcoal fire, this breakfast on the shore. The other one is when Jesus is denied by Peter. He goes over to this charcoal fire. He's warming himself there. And somebody says to him, hey, weren't you one of the guys that was with him? And he says, no, I, I'm not. I'm not him. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. About an hour later, another person comes walking up. It was a relative of the guy who's, who Peter had cut his ear off. So don't ever cut somebody's ear off, all right? You're getting yourself in trouble. A relative comes walking up, and he says, hey, I saw you in the olive grove. Aren't you one of the guys that was with them? And he says, I don't know what you're talking about. I swear I don't know the man. And right as he says that, he looks through that charcoal fire and the smoke, and he sees face-to-face Jesus. Luke chapter 22 tells about it. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 61, it says, The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And then we see his response. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. He was broken. This is the guy who said, it doesn't matter what everybody else does, I'm going with you, I'm going with you, I'll go with you to death. Even if it's crucifixion, I'll go with you to prison, no matter what everybody else does. And then there's this little girl who says something to him, and as soon as he's got the pressure, he blows it, he fails. And then Jesus asks him the question, do you love me more than these Again, they're seated at a charcoal fire. Again, he makes eye contact with Jesus. And again, he's reminded of this moment that probably haunts him. If there were one thing that Peter had a do-over for life, I am very confident that he would use it on this. It's his greatest failure. Jesus says, do you love me more than these? Notice his response. Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. He doesn't say, you know that I love you more than these. Why? That's irrelevant. It doesn't matter how much anyone else loves you. Now you know how much I love you. I'm done with the comparison stuff. And what we see here with Peter, and he goes back, he falls into it again in a couple verses actually, in verses 20 through 23. He's told about his death and he says, well, how's this guy going to die? And Jesus basically says to him, none of your business. You worry about you. And what Peter's done here is he's saying, my sin, I own my sin. It doesn't matter what these folks are doing. And he's done with the comparison games in this moment. Comparison games that we all fall trapped to. You know, they've got a bigger house than we do. They've got a nicer car. They've got a nicer family. Or, you know, they do more stuff for the Lord. They do more ministries. Or, you know, we kind of compare ourselves to everybody. We can always find somebody better than us. We can always find somebody worse than us. You hear the spectrum all the time. You know, well, I'm not perfect. <laughs> That's not a newsflash for anyone, just so you know. I'm not perfect. Uh, I'm not Mother Teresa. It was kind of like, like just under perfect, right? But I'm not like a serial killer. <laughs> okay, great. Now we've got the standards established, and we kind of fit somewhere in the middle. And so we think we're okay. But none of that matters. We all fail and fall short of the glory of God. What's your greatest failure? I'm not saying what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you. What's your greatest failure? You need to own that because it was your decision. What is your greatest failure? That's yours. And see, we live in a society, an American society, where we have a like, professional victim mentality. We can rationalize and justify anything. We see it on TV. We see the politicians do it all the time. We can explain stuff away. And it's kind of nice for our conscience. And we blame it on other people. We blame it on our environment. This is kind of the culture that I grew up in. This is the way my dad always was. This is how things were. There was this moment. And it's like mom's fault. It's dad's fault. It's circumstances' fault. It's my culture's fault. It's something. But we don't own it ourselves. Let me tell you something. Whatever your failure is, that's yours. 
And you've got to own that. Do you know what happens when you start to own that? You feel the weight of that. And that's a problem. Because what you eventually realize is there's nothing you can do about it. And that's a great place to be. Because then you can realize something's been done about it. We actually sang about it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. That he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become God's righteousness. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, that's grace. But you don't truly grasp grace. You don't embrace grace until you've embraced your failure and you realize the weight of your sin and you've got to acknowledge that it's yours. It's not somebody else's fault. It's not mom's fault. It's not dad's fault. It's not because you're a victim of something. You made a decision. Own up to the decision. And do you know what you deserve for that? You deserve guilt. And you deserve condemnation, and you deserve death, and you deserve the depression, and you deserve the anxiety, and you deserve to forever be haunted by that sin. That's what you deserve, and you deserve separation from God, and you deserve hell. But do you know what you get? If you receive it, you receive grace. You receive redemption in the failure. You receive renewal. You receive restoration. You receive rescuing. You receive being reclaimed. You receive forgiveness. You receive mercy. You receive love. You receive Jesus Christ and all his fullness, and in him you become the righteousness of God. First, you've got to own your junk, and what you receive is something you don't deserve. We're in the third week of this series, and we have not defined grace yet, and that's been intentional. It's because I don't want you just to know words. I want you to know grace. You see, what grace is, it's when you receive something you don't deserve. That's grace. That's a simple definition of a huge theological concept. It's when you're given something you don't deserve. What we deserve, death. What we deserve, guilt. What we deserve, condemnation. What we deserve, separation from God. We all deserve hell. I don't care where you think you fit on the spectrum, serial killer, just under Mother Teresa, like you forgot to feed one of the thousands of hungry people you were trying to feed yesterday, okay? Wherever you're at on the spectrum, you deserve hell. You deserve separation from God. You deserve condemnation. But what you get is grace. What you get is mercy. What you get is love. What you get is forgiveness. What you get is a pardon from God. You know what a pardon is? It's when you're, you're released from a punishment that you should be paying. It's your, you're given something you don't deserve. I was watching CNN this week, and they were talking about a Mississippi governor who was giving out pardons. He gave out pardons to four convicted murderers. And they were talking about this and whether that was a good decision or not. And they actually interviewed one of the murderers. And it was clear this guy was guilty. Um, His story was that he shot, I can't remember if it was his girlfriend or his wife, but in front of a bunch of people, he shot her in the back. And so there were eyewitnesses, everything. He didn't even, I don't think, deny that he did it. But he killed this woman. Then he goes to jail. And through a program that they have, and while he's in the jail, he gets to work at the governor's mansion. He meets the governor, and they get to know each other. And when the governor gives out a pardon, he gives this guy one of the pardons. They did an interview with the brother of the woman he shot. What do you think he thought? Do you know what he said? He does not deserve that pardon. And do you know what? He's exactly right. No one deserves a pardon. But what the news analysts started to discuss was there are less violent criminals that that pardon could have been given to. That's true. There, it is possible that it could have been given to less violent criminals. But the implied statement of that is this. They deserve it more than the murderer does. And that's wrong. Because they all deserve to serve the punishment for their crime. And the punishment for our crime is separation from God. The punishment for our crime is guilt and condemnation. The punishment for our crime comes with all kinds of different consequences. But God's grace is a pardon. It's given to us freely. 
He cleanses us from in. Grace, grace, God's grace that is greater than all of our sin. And some of you might think to yourself, but God can't forgive my sin. If you knew my failure, and it's your big secret, maybe it's a person, maybe it's an affair, maybe it's sexual sin, maybe it's financial sin, maybe it's a lie, maybe you've just been living a double life and you're still in it. And you think, no one, not mine, my situation is different. No, you cannot send the cross. See, God's grace is incredible, and God's grace is that you don't get what you deserve. And we see it all over the scriptures. You see, with the thief on the cross, you know what the thief on the cross deserves? He deserves to die like a criminal. He was a thief, and that's what he did with thieves. And he deserves to go to hell forever. But by God's grace, Jesus says to him, this day you will be with me in paradise. He's being given a gift that he does not deserve. The woman that's caught in adultery that's brought before Jesus, you know what she deserves? According to the scriptures, she deserves to be stoned to death. But by God's grace, Jesus says, let he who's without sin, which is no one, let he who's without sin cast the first stone. He knows a stone's not going to be thrown because we've all failed and all fallen short of the glory of God. And then by God's grace, he gives her a second chance to live a new life. He says, you go and you live, leave this life of sin and live a new life. And here with Peter, what does Peter deserve for denying Jesus? From the lips of Jesus, he's heard Jesus say, Mark chapter 8, verse 38, If you are ashamed of me before men, I will be ashamed of you before my Father and the angels in heaven. What Peter deserves is guilt, condemnation, separation, death, and hell. What Peter is given is God's grace, restoration, redemption, mercy, forgiveness, and a new second chance. That's grace. And so here's Peter sitting at this fire with Jesus. Do you think that charcoal fire sparked any memories for him before the questions were even asked? Do you ever have things that kind of spark your memory, almost like a flashback, maybe a smell, maybe a noise? Do you think that Peter's haunted by this sin in his life? Do you think when he closes his eyes, he sees the face of that girl that asked him that first question? Ever hear a voice in a crowd and he wonders if it sounds like that guy that was the relative of the guy whose ear he cut off? You ever have those moments where you're reminded of your junk? of your failure, of your past. And what do you do in those moments? I told you that 2011 was a dark year for me. I'll tell you, it's changed the way that I pray. One of the things I've been doing lately in my prayer life is instead of just talking to God, you know, a lot of times I just tell God, like, here's the things that are going on, <laughs> like he needs a news update. And then, and then I say, here's what I'd like you to do now, as if he didn't know my heart already. And said, lately what I've been doing is I've been saying, God, will you speak to me? And can you imagine what Peter must have felt like being face-to-face with Jesus and Jesus wants to talk to him about his greatest failure? Can you imagine what that would be like? You know the first phrase that's been coming to my mind every time I ask that question? Scott, I love you. Do you know what God wants to say to you today? I love you. In your failure, I love you. Nothing you do changes my love for you. You cannot send the cross. I love you. I love you, and I can use you and I can redeem you, and I have a plan for you. Do you love me? See, when he asked Peter this question, do you love me? He knows the answer. Peter says that. Yes, Lord, you know. You know that I love you. Do you love me more than these? You know that I love you. It's irrelevant what these do. Do you, do you love me, Peter? Do you truly love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Verse 17, he's hurt that he asked a third time. Some people think the reason why he's hurt here is because if you read the Greek text, there's actually two different words for love that are used, phileo and agape, and that's not it. Those words are used synonymously throughout the Gospel of John. He's hurt, and the text tells us very clearly, because he asked a third time. Why does Jesus have to ask a third time? 
It's not because Jesus doesn't know. Like I ask my kids sometimes questions repeatedly. <laughs> it's because I'm trying to get to the bottom of so, you know, who put toothpaste all over the mirror? <laughs> and I'll usually get like, you know, I didn't do it, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. And, all right, who put toothpaste all over the mirror? I don't know the answer to the question. I'm waiting for somebody to crack here, okay? And I'm not like doing fingerprints on the mirror. I'm just asking. And then somebody gets quiet, and, you know, then I figure it out. And Jesus already knows the answer to this question. Why does he ask three times? He asks three times because he's restoring. He's redeeming Peter. And Peter has a greater love for Jesus now than he did before when he said, no matter what anyone else will do, I will follow you even to death. And we know that's true. Jesus has taught that before in Luke chapter 7. He's talking to a guy that's, his name's Simon as well. Simon the Pharisee though, not Simon Peter. Simon the Pharisee, a guy who doesn't understand grace. He's a church guy. He just doesn't get grace. He might be able to define it, but he hasn't embraced it. And then there's a very sinful person that's there. And Jesus says to this guy, uh, let me tell you a story. There's a little parable. We just imagine with me, Simon, for a second, there's two people that owe money. One owes 500 denarii, the other owes 50. Neither one of them have enough money to pay back the money lender. The money lender decides that he's going to forgive the debt of both. Which one loves him more? And Simon, the Pharisee, knows the right answer. And he says, well, I suppose the one who had the greater debt forgiven. That is correct, Simon. And then he turns to the woman there that's known for her sinful life. Because he wasn't talking about money. He was talking about sin. And he says, you know, those who've been forgiven much, they love much. Do you love me, Peter? Jesus, you know all things. You know that I love you. And then he has a plan for him and feed my sheep, and take care of my flock. My people, not your people, Peter. You feed my people. You love me, then love my people. See, I'm going to redeem you from this failure, and I still have a plan for you. You see, I don't know what your failure is, but God still has a plan for you in your failure. See, God's not surprised by your failure. You go back to the beginning, Adam and Eve. You think that God created perfect heaven, perfect earth, and he had this perfect plan for these guys to be in perfect relationship with him. Then he puts this tree there, and then they sin, and he goes, oh, man, you messed the whole thing up. <laughs> like, he was surprised by this? You think God didn't know this was going to happen? You see, the people are still wholly responsible, but God's plan has always included the cross. It's always included his glory. Even in our failure, his plan is for our good and his glory. And our good is ultimately his glory because that's what we were created for. And so I don't know what your failure is, but you haven't failed too much. God still has a plan for you. You need to hear that. You need to realize that he has a plan even in our failure. It doesn't mean go out and try to fail more so that he can be glorified more through more grace. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 6. But when you do fail, and it will happen because all fail and fall short of the glory of God, when you do fail, he's there to bring you back and rescue you, reclaim you, redeem you, forgive you, give you mercy, and bring you back to give you a second chance. It's the very thing he's doing here with Peter. You love me? Feed my sheep, verses 15 through 17. Then in verse 18, he gets real specific. Let me tell you my plan for you. He says in verse 18, I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus isn't just saying here, hey, getting old stinks, okay? He's not saying, hey, before you were 30, you could play sports and you didn't have to stretch out. After 30, even if you stretch out, it hurts for like three weeks, okay? There's a general proverb here about older and younger, and people appeal to that sometimes when they're interpreting this, but if you understand that this phrase, when you stretch out your hands, was an analogy in the ancient world for crucifixion. 
And what Jesus is saying here is, Peter, you're going to be crucified. When you were younger, you could do whatever you want. You could jump out of the boat, grab your coat, swim to shore. But there's going to come a time in your life where you're going to be taken where you don't want to go and someone's going to crucify you. And tradition says that the way that Peter died is he was crucified, but he said, will you please crucify me upside down because I'm not worthy to die as my Lord. And John tells us this to make sure it's clear to us in verse 19. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. You see, you're going to be crucified, Peter, but Peter doesn't know when. Remember a couple weeks ago I, I said to you, if you knew God's plan for your life, the day you would die, everything that would happen between then and, and that day, now and that day, then would you be able to do it? Well, see, Peter, he knows how he's going to die. He doesn't realize, we do because we know hindsight, that he doesn't die for about 30 years, about three decades between the time this incident happens and when he's crucified. So the question is, what do you do in the meantime? And he tells him here, follow me. Does that sound familiar? Especially if you're Peter. Mark chapter 1, verse 17, the very first words that Peter hears Jesus say, come follow me. Drop your nets, drop everything you have, you come follow me. And he hears Jesus teach throughout the scriptures to everybody that's going to come follow him. Luke chapter 9, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. In Luke chapter 14, and verse 27, the, the words of Jesus, and anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. John chapter 10, talk about shepherding the sheep here, Peter. This is Jesus talking about being a shepherd of his people. He says, my sheep, they listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. See, Peter's heard this before. And now he's being told here, you, you keep on following me. Even though you failed, you keep on following me to the cross, which is interesting when you think about Peter's story because remember he said, even if you die, even if you are crucified, I will follow you to death, and then he didn't. This is a real second chance, very literally. Peter, you're going to be crucified, and in the meantime, I want you to follow me. I want you to do what you said you were going to do, Peter, and I'm going to give you a second chance to do it because God gives second chances. And that's his plan for you. You failed, he's got a second chance for you. He had a second chance for Peter. You consider his story and just think about what it was to be Peter. He didn't know that he had 30 years left. And a little bit over a month from the time this incident takes place, he gets an opportunity to stand before thousands of people, the very people who crucified Jesus, and to proclaim the message. Do you think that he thought that day was the day he'd be crucified? Because every day he wakes up not knowing what day it's going to be. He just knows he'll be crucified someday. And so in Acts chapter 2, he stands up before a group of people and remember, he had that opportunity before one little girl, and he failed. And now he's before thousands of people. And he says, you killed God. When you crucified Jesus, you killed God. Do you think he thought he was going to die that day? But by God's grace, he's given a second chance. And he steps out on that second chance, and he follows Jesus Christ. And by God's grace and God's mercy, he doesn't die that day. But instead what happens is those people come under conviction. They feel the weight of their sin. And so what they say back to Peter while he's preaching is, now what do we do? We killed God, now what? It must be hopeless. God could never forgive that. How could we ever go on? Our sin is different than everybody else up until this point in history. And you know what then Peter says? Own your sin. Repent. Turn from that and turn to God. Turn from you doing your own thing. Turn from whatever your greatest failure is, crucifying Jesus. Turn from murder. Turn from sexual sin. Turn from lying. Turn from doing your own stuff. And turn to Jesus Christ. And they're all given a second chance, and that's the birth of the church. It's a grace movement. 
I think it's very interesting that God chooses to use a man that truly knew what it was to live by a second chance. It wasn't that he mentally mastered some Bible verses. It was that he truly knew God's grace. He knew what it was to receive something he didn't deserve, which was a second chance. You know, the great news is God still gives second chances today. It's not just at the beginning of the church. It's not just with Peter. I've been reading through your grace stories. The first week we did this, we let you fill out on your worship program, your grace story. We're still taking them on email, and there's some slips of paper over by the table there now. And I've been reading through them. So many of you living on a, a second chance now, a third chance, or a hundredth chance. There was one woman, it wasn't Kyle and Emily who shared their story, which obviously got a second chance. Well, there's one woman in her story, she talked about how her and her husband were having sex before they got married, and they had an abortion. And then they got married, and they got pregnant, and she was laying in bed, and she's miscarrying the child, and she said to God, I understand, this is the consequence of my sin. This is a penalty for my sin. And God spoke to her and said, no, I've forgiven you for that. And she gave birth to a healthy child. See, God still gives second chances. And some of you, what God's offering you today is a second chance. It's His grace. You don't deserve it. But He's offering it to you freely. And what you have to do is you have to take it. See, the wages of our sin, what we earn from God is separation. It's death. It's destruction. It's condemnation. It's guilt. It's depression. It's anxiety. It's being haunted forever by the same sin. That's what we deserve. But He can free us from that. He can redeem us from that because He redeems us in our failure. He can restore us and rescue us and make us new. Old things pass away and he makes us a new creation, but we have to receive his grace. And some of you here today, you're religious or you go to church and you think you're pretty much a good person, but you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you need to receive his grace today and start a relationship with Jesus. Others of you, you're followers of Jesus Christ and you might think to yourself, well, I'm not supposed to do it again because now I've trusted Jesus. You know, you still need his grace. But saying that it's a product of our environment, saying it's somebody else's fault, saying all that stuff, you'll never really get God's grace. You've got to take ownership of your stuff and realize you can't hold that weight and you take it to the cross. Have you received grace in your failure? Whatever your greatest failure was, whatever your most recent failure was, let's take it to the cross. Father God, we come before you and we acknowledge that we all sin. I sin. Every one of us sins. Father, and we come before you and we lay that sin down before you. Some of you may even want to name it. You may even want us to say, this is what I'm taking to the foot of the cross right now. I'm giving it to you that your grace is greater than my sin, whatever it is. Lies, deception, living your own life, whatever it is, and you've done an affair, an addiction, you take it to the cross. And he can take that. And each one of us here with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, some of you here, you might hear about this grace, but you haven't experienced it. You don't really know Jesus Christ is your Savior. And what you need to do is you need to admit your sin before God. Anything you've done that's been living life your way apart from Him, that's sin. That's a failure. And you admit that sin before Him and then acknowledge that He died for that sin when He died on the cross. And receive the gift that He offers you. Receive the grace, the pardon that He's giving you that you don't have to pay the penalty for that sin, but He has when you place your faith in the cross then you can receive eternal life. But it'll take over your life when you trust Jesus as your Savior. If you want to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior today, with everybody's heads bowed and eyes closed, would you raise your hand? Would you tell God, I want to trust Jesus Christ to be my Savior today? See somebody raise their hand right away. You can raise your hand up and hold it high. And if you're in Theater 14, you can raise your hand up. If you're watching online, maybe you're at a school, at a cafe, you're at home, maybe you just weren't able to make it to church today, and you want to trust Jesus Christ, your Savior, we even where you're seated, we raise your hand up. We just hold it up and acknowledge to God, God, I want to trust you to be my Savior today. And if you want to trust Jesus Christ to be your Savior today, well, you're seated in your, seated in your seat, or maybe you're even standing up watching online, will you pray this prayer? You can pray it in your heart. You can pray it out loud if you want to. You just pray these words with me.
Father God, I acknowledge my sin before you. I believe your son Jesus died for that sin. And I want to receive your grace. Today, I give you my life. I'm done doing it my way. Today, I want to ask Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. And if you prayed to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we want to pray for you. We want to help you in that decision. If you would, before you leave here today, if you're here, would you mark in your connection card that you trusted Jesus? And if you're watching online, would you just send us an email? Even if you're in another state, we'll be praying for you. We'll send you some information. And Father, I come before you on behalf of those that have already trusted you as their Savior, and we still need your grace. We still need your mercy every day. We need your love and your forgiveness, your redemption. I pray that repentance will be a regular part of our lives, as sin is a regular part of our lives. I pray as we blow it, little, big, whatever it is, that we come to you and come to the cross and receive your grace, and we wouldn't fake it like we can figure it all out. Thank you for your pardon. Thank you for your cleansing. Thank you for your grace that's greater than anything we could ever do, anything we could ever say, any way that we could ever blow it, that you still love us. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.